So today's guest is Tahia Aloni, who is an extra-century business consultant and homeopath, as well as being a former national judo champion in Israel, seven years running. So welcome to the show. Hi, Jivan. Thanks for having me. Pleased to be here. Absolutely. We obviously had a, a chat off air before, didn't we, about a number of things. Um, so if you would just talk about your business, um, sorry, your uh, your situation and where it started from. So you obviously was a, were a kid and you were doing judo. How did that develop you into the person you are, are today? Ooh, well, <laughs> I remember I actually started doing judo at the age of five. Um, and I was doing judo from the age of five to the age of 18, which was like the first, the, the, the most important, you know, starting portion of my life. And I think that was, you know, a crucial stage in my development. First of all, um, judo is an individual sport, so which is very different from uh, from team sports, as I discovered later on. Um, and you learn a lot. You know, you learn how to depend on yourself. You learn the, the power of uh, perseverance. Uh, you learn about the learning curve. Um, and you learn basically it's also a form of survival. It's a martial art at the end of the day. Um, but... Um, being and I also was seven. I was seven years running. I was a national judo tam, judo champion. I was on the Israeli judo team. Um, but I was very selfish <laughs> because I kept on thinking about my success and how I'm going to win and how I'm going to maintain my title. And also, as being part of the national judo team, uh, I used to be sent off to training camps abroad, which was lovely. I used to enjoy that a lot. And competitions abroad. And I also had to fight. Uh, fight for my place because if you you know there was one place you know for for you know judo is also dividing into weight categories so there was one person who was going to go to the training camp in Belgium and I had to find fight my teammates for that one place to go to that training camp for example so it made me a very selfish person um and later among other things, obviously it built, you know, lots of good and positive character traits, but I think all individual sports at the end of the day, you know, it's all about you and you being number one. And, uh, and like we spoke about, it's, it's a zero sub, sum game because there's always a winner and a loser. And at some point at the age of 18, um, I, I was already drafted to the Israeli army. Um, everyone has to go to the army here in Israel, you know, men and women. And I had, I, I actually had the, what the army does because uh, when, if you're an excellent athlete, they, they let you train, you know, they let you keep on training during your service. So I had received that status um, and uh, I was in the army, I was uh, like an assistant librarian, <laughs> it's like the most <laughs> meaningless uh, job. I used to come into the army. I used to go, literally, I used to, I, I I remember my my record time was going in and out of the you know of the of the office within 17 minutes. What I used to do, I used to go. It was like the army navy. It was the navy library, and I had to update what magazines had arrived on the computer. So my <laughs> uh, my record was after 17 minutes, I managed to to update all the magazines for the day, and I went back to training because I used to tra train twice a day. Um, but at some point, I, I injured my knee. I had injured my knee, you know, for the first time, uh, you know, uh, when I was younger and I had to do a, a surgery ACL, the, uh, one of the ligaments, and then I injured my knee again, the other knee. And that's when I decided that it was time to, I, I couldn't, to quit. I, I couldn't go on. Um, and I decided I wanted to do something more meaningful in, in the army. 
And I became uh, a commander, in, a boot camp commander for new recruits from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. What the army actually does, uh, the, the IDF takes a, a youth from difficult backgrounds and it actually gives them a, a second chance. It's a, sort of, it's, it's actually a service for society. And it's a special program where they have um, like a minimal freedom. So if you would tell you like, normally you tell soldiers that they have 10 minutes to, to get dressed and shave and, and be ready, but in, or, or, or five minutes to go from here to the canteen. But uh, with these new recruits, the, the program is built that they have minimal independence. So during the first few weeks, instead of going for, like giving them five minutes to go to the canteen, you give them 15 seconds to go from this tree to the next tree and you'd start mobilizing them. And as they, they, they make these, you have like um, more obtainable goals. As they reach their object objectives, you give them more and more freedom. And at the end of the eight week program, for instance, you can give them five minutes and they'll reach the canteen. If you would, you know, you would start the program by giving them five minutes to the canteen, you arrive at the canteen after five minutes and all, all the soldiers would be all over the base. No one would actually go there. No one would appear in the canteen. So you build their independence slowly uh, and they actually go through this whole you know, uh, process where they, where they become, most of them, not, quite a large percentage of them do um, what, what we used to say, straighten out and manage to become soldiers and uh, be part of the system because the military system is very, uh, you know, is, is not very flexible. But as a commander uh, of such recruits, you have, you have to be completely selfless. First of all, they're very, they're very difficult and obviously they think that you're against them and it's very thankless. Uh, so I had to go from a very, <laughs> I had to do a very big switch from going from being someone who's very selfish and focused on my own success to someone who's completely there for a, a whole group of soldiers um, who basically hate me, you know, usually <laughs> to begin with for the first few weeks until I actually gain their trust and they see that I'm actually for them. So that that was, uh, you know, another stage in my in my development. So, so, so you've you've gone from being a national judo champion that yeah. has been traveling abroad representing the country as you said it's i think there's a fine line isn't there between being selfish and ambitious because to to be ambitious you need to sometimes be selfish and you see this with football players they're in a team sport but some of the football players are very selfish in order to get their own goals their own stats up um and now you are well, at that point you were a commander and you had to be very self Less. So there's two ends of the spectrum there, isn't there? Exactly. And that's what managed actually, and that's how I managed to make the flip because the army being uh, such an inflexible system, you have no choice but to make the flip. You go from, you know, taking care of your health and taking care of your needs, own needs all the time to sleeping three and a half hours, you know, a day and having no breaks and being there for someone else. And that actually helps you make a quick transition when you don't have much of a choice. That's usually when you when you make the change. You know, people aren't very, in general, I find it's difficult to make a change and you usually make a change when you have no choice. Yeah. So the, well, that actually this, forced me. Yeah, there's, there's, there's generally two ways, isn't there? There's either desperation or inspiration to make you make a change. And generally if it's desperation, you're forced to. 
then then you can make that change. But the thing with the army is, is that the the purpose and focus of the army comes above everyone else. So if you don't feel good about something, but you have to do that, the the focus of the army's task or objective is above you, if that makes sense. Whereas with judo, yeah, exactly. it's, it's the res- the result that's most important. And because it's you who controls that, you want to control every asset of the gripping, the, the movement, and, and try and get sometimes easier opponents so that you can get later stages. Did your did your mindset shift from a judoka to a commander in that respect of looking at small objectives versus the wider objective of, of the army, for example? Um, I tell you what, because it, when once you're on the national team, so um first of all, I like the what, what you said about desperation and inspiration. That's a, that's an amazing you know way to look at it. It's just when, when you're part of the national team, it's like someone is going to represent Israel in that competition. It's either going to be you or it's going to be someone else. So you still, once you're serving a, you know, you're representing a, a larger, you know, system, whether it's the country or the army, you still, you know, you, you, you're still an individual trying to maintain your individuality, you know, in front of a, uh, a much bigger system that really it doesn't care about you that much <laughs> you know you're 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 also a means to an end and it's either 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 you're going to be either you're in or you're out so uh, i think that's the difference of being on a national team compared to just doing it as a, as a hobby that's, so that's true and the thing is when you get to a high level so i, I did judo as well obviously we spoke off air about this before um, I did judo for a few years as a as a kid till from like eleven to fourteen. Got to green belt, stopped for seventeen years as you do. You know, you get to the age where you want to go out and meet girls and have drinks and stuff. So you tend to to not be willing to sacrifice that for a wider objective. Got to age thirty and I thought, well, actually, I really enjoyed judo as a kid. I want to to get back to do it. Um, so I started up again. Um, and since then, I've been doing okay to, to be honest can you talk a bit about f- f- the high level side of judo in terms of the gripping side is it that you need to throw in every direction what is it exactly that separates you at that level because at low level it's get your hands on and sort of walk around with each other and and see what happens but if you watch high level judo it's grip and go a lot of the time isn't it Well, I think, you know, also uh, um, higher levels. I remember um, also one of the things that it's important to know that when I, I had always a, an Israeli judo coach, and at some point uh, there were lots of Russian Jews came to Israel. And uh, and then we had a, a Russian judo coach and it was a very different t- type of judo. And also, as Russians do, he had a more... Um, uh, a broader approach. I remember he also had me do like math tests to see how quickly I think, uh, like simple math tests, but lots of um, you know adding adding lots of numbers and how quickly I would do that. And it was a broader approach to to training. Um, so and also judo in in uh, in Russia is they do sambo, which is a kind of form of yeah. wrestling. So the judo, the Russian judo is more. It's less like the Japanese is more. I'd say the traditional style, it's maybe it's a cleaner style, whereas the, the sambo and the Russian judo, it's more you kind of, you 
you you fold people up and you roll over and you don't really know where <laughs> where it's coming from. I remember practicing like Russian judo moves and they didn't they, they didn't have, an, have even have a name in the traditional sense. Yeah. And I and my sense of orientation it was it was very difficult for me, me to orient myself because it was putting someone around my head and moving forward and it, it was more difficult but it was it was a different style. Yeah. And and then he, I remember he the coach he draw like a like you know a cross and then we we started building um, a takui you know the the word takui is like your favorite like your, strong, your favorite uh, move yeah and for each direction um, I had I I had a, a takui you know for forward and left you know a, a throw like that was ostogari um, and. Uh, like the ponsionage on the left on the knees. So every direction, whatever direction the woman would go, I had like it was like a star, and I knew I was I knew what what move I would make, depending on you know where the opponent goes. So and that that those were the moves that I would practice. That was you know my expertise, and I had that that's 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 I think that's the more professional uh approach to to judo at the higher level so so your four directions throws so ipon sienaki was off the opposite grip the the, the left yeah the yeah. opposite grip. then you had also to gary to the far corner so your right-handed yeah, player yeah yeah to the far corner and that then i used to i used to like you know catching both sleeves and yeah. sort of pushing so the arm um yeah. backwards yeah and that that was the uh, um ostogari yeah, and then it was uh, like uh, Ogeruma or something. You know, Tayatoshi was like Tayatoshi, for instance, is uh, I think it's there's some we spoke about it earlier that there's some um, uh, judo moves that that are more suitable for young, people, but as you get older or more professional, then uh, then it's more difficult to do it. You don't do them anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like the Marote Seonagi, I used to like as a child doing Marote Seonagi is when you catch the the lapel, right? Is that yeah, how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you turn around and you pull him. But then they told you know. Then I was told that Marote Seonagi is not good for young for you know for older children. And then I had to do the Pon Seonagi where you do you put the arm underneath the armpit and you throw forward. So it's it's you lose it's not a, it's less of an art so to speak uh, when you become professional. Yeah. In, in a way, it's a different kind of order. It takes a different, um, it's much more functional and practical, I'd say, than when when it becomes uh, professional and competitive, the judo. Yeah. What about the far, the other far corner? What would you throw to that other, other corner? Gary um, or something? Ochi, coach, uh, Ochi Gary. Yeah, yeah Ochi Gary. Um, with catching the leg at the same time. That that was like the Russian, yeah. the Russian, the Russian extra thing was when you do Ochi Gary and you actually fall on your knee and you catch catch the leg um, and you bring it all the way to your shoulder. So it's like an Ochigari, like, but it's more like, you know, cropping the leg. Yeah. <laughs> that was the, the Russian take on, on that one. But I, I, like you said, though, I was saying to my friend the other day, I was like, I miss uh, judo two years ago, three years ago when I started, when it was like, I didn't overthink things. It would just go in, start ragging people around and get your arm around and throw them. Now, not that I'm at any level compared to what you are, but you have to then start thinking, well, what are my throws? What's the gripping, gripping strategies? Where do I need my hands? Where do I need to move them? And not that it gets more boring, but it it takes away some of that um, uh, sort of es love, love essence from it in, in some respects. But if you were to give me some advice 
as to how I can get to that next level, what would you what would you say? Um, first of all, what you say, it's, it's, what you what you were talking about, it's it's like about specialization. Like in, like in everything, you get your niche. You know, uh, if you want to do anything good, you have to specialize and have your niche. And what happens is you practice so many times that it's it's automated. It's these, you know, it's your brain becomes, you know, these. Uh, you just you do it you, before you, you before you even think about it. That's, that's the whole thing about reflex. Everything becomes like a reflex reflex movement. I remember, like years after I stopped judo, some guy, some man just jokingly sort of attacked me from the back, and I I already went just did that the judo move, even though I hadn't done it for years. It's just part of the brain already functions that way and it does you do lose the joy I, I can say I, I used to hate doing judo I used to hate training you know I, I hate trade I hated training I hated going to the gym and because you had to do weight exercises and I hated running most I hate running I hate I hate uh, monotonous sports yeah I hate it's running as well <laughs> so I used to do it and I used to hate it I remember starting starting practice looking at the clock and thinking, oh my God, another hour and a half, another two and a half hours, this is going to last. How will I do it? But I just loved winning so much. <laughs> and I also loved, and I also loved going abroad and I loved the whole social aspect of it. Um, but I then realized that for that one second when you win, winning doesn't last long because there's always someone you're breathing down your neck, you know? You can just be a champion for so long, and then someone's. You always have to maintain that uh, that title. That I decided I was going to actually get joy from something else. Okay, and that's when I I I I, I you know I had to quit judo, but it took me a long time to to get joy from other things. And I think that's when whatever you do is even like like you say judo. I think it's a it's a make sure that you enjoy doing it that you have the passion for doing it um i think that's very important because as a youngster i learned i had so i such i had such high levels of discipline that i did it even though i hated it and for years i hated it and it was part of my identity but i just i was willing to pay the price but the price was too high at some point uh so i think if i i you know I, i'm if I were to give you advice about the judo, I don't know if I want, you know, if I'm, I can give you, you know, without being on the mat with you and seeing what you do, but it's just doing something that you enjoy and with a passion. That's the most important thing. Yeah, you have to enjoy it, don't you? When you stop enjoying it, although you can still get, as you said, to the top levels, it doesn't give you the same feeling anymore. Um, but everyone's different. Some people need that. Some people don't need to, to love something. They just need to see results. And I suppose it yeah. depends on your personality side. But you talked a bit about finding joy in something and that that's changed over time. So what is it you now find joy in? Is it in what you do day to day or is it something else? OK, so now I, I you see what, what I, I understood was that um, like pursuing my happiness, so to speak, pursuing what gives me joy. Um, I, I, I don't do zero sum games anymore. Okay, my joy, I think, like I say, part of evolution was from becoming someone who's selfish and, you know, all into winning. What I, I, I find, and I think, you know, also philosophically speaking, uh, the joy that lasts most is, is, is joy that when you manage, when, uh, the joy of, you know, I'm sorry about the cliche, the joy of giving, basically. Yeah. But, it's, but it's about giving your best. It's doing, I think, 
the joy of following my calling okay when when i feel when i feel that i'm 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 aligned with my calling and you know with what you know my purpose is in life and i do what i love and i'm good at what i do that gives me joy uh, so now like so i went i just i i just do a quick you know um recap so if if i went from being a judo you know selfish judo <laughs> judo champion to a selfless military boot camp commander i afterwards became a homeopath so a homeopath is you know you're it's just you're a therapist you cure people it, it gives it gives a lot of satisfaction and it definitely does give me satisfaction uh, gave me satisfaction and still get, does give me satisfaction i have uh, thank god a thriving homeopathic clinic and i treat lots of people so that was like my next stage of evolution was you know, treating people and helping people using homeopathy, which is amazing because it's a whole philosophy, it's a whole way of life. And then my the later stage of my development, the way I see it is what, becoming an extrasensory business consultant. Because the way um, you have, most people would say that there's the business world, or we'd say the material world, and it is disconnected from the, the spiritual world. And the, the way I see it actually bring, bringing the spiritual uh, the spiritual principles and the spiritual into the material world for me is what brings me the most satisfaction is when I give, uh, when I, I give extrasensory business consultations to people and I, uh, I actually show them how you can do business and make do business. That's, you know, that's a win-win and not a zero sum game. And actually, that's that for me is making the world a better place, and that's what gives me joy and satisfaction. That's long lasting because, uh, like I say, it's when I make the world a better place, the world becomes better, and it reflects back to back, reflects back to me. So I think that's that, that. I think everyone should, you know, if everyone follows the calling, ultimately, that that's what people feel, and everyone makes the world better in their own way. Yeah, I think that's a common misconception, isn't it? That to be a successful businessman you have to basically take things from people but the best businesses actually as you said provide value and there has to be some sort of give and take because when people pay for something it's a transfer of value isn't it it's a transfer of service it's a transfer of product whatever it's going to be so if you can focus on giving value giving service the, the monetary side happens itself have you found that yeah, exactly. That, that 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 that's what happens, and I think the the monetary, you know, it does happen by itself. But also, some people have you know have a very difficult time speaking about money. They feel uncomfortable asking for money or negotiating. And I think I think it's also a part of of life. You need to know how to talk about these things and learn how to demand what you deserve and receive what you deserve. But it's all a matter of maintaining a good relationship and uh, goodwill throughout the process so if you know if if i look at life like this basically like uh, a gym for the soul yeah. <laughs> where we're actually we're here to evolve and learn and it doesn't really matter what you do it's what matters is how you do it and the consciousness that you come to do it and the state of mind that you're in while you do it so if you understand that the person in front of you um, exists, but he also exists um, in order to help you grow, 
then you look at things differently. So the person in front of you, we seem to be giving you a hard time, is basically here, there to basically train you to become a better person and to learn how to deal with, with that certain pattern that he's presenting at the moment. Yeah, so what you're saying is that we're in the gym and someone is spending too much time on the bench press and they are <laughs> neglecting the, 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 the back exercises or they're neglecting the bicep curls or they're neglecting the legs. And this is a metaphor for yeah. life is what you're saying. So how can people start moving around the equipment and what is it that you feel that people miss out on in life? Is it the spiritual side that, that as you said, aligns with, with business as well or? I think you know. I remember one time I was in this spiritual study class, and and one of the women said, you know, ask the teacher whether whether she whether she can give out homework. <laughs> and I remember telling her, don't worry, life will give you homework. So yeah, you see the reality already. Um, the good thing about reality, I think, is it always presents to us, you know, what we need to work on. We don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to look far. It will just come to your doorstep. You know, the, the lesson is there. The lesson is there, you know, when, you know, if I've got two kids, you know. So when my daughter starts having a temper tantrum, that's where my lesson is at that at the moment. I don't have to start looking far. It's, uh, it's you know, at every moment we have a lesson to be learned. And it's just a matter of, oh, at the end of the day, it's a matter of perspective, the way you look at things. If you look at things as, as an opportunity to grow, as part of your spiritual training, then it's much easier also to to accept them and also yeah. to understand what, what what's required of you at, at, at that very moment. Absolutely. There's a stoic phrase that says, if a man walks into a river, when he comes back out of the river, neither the man nor the river is the same. And that's, exactly. that's exactly what each experience is. It's that river that we've gone through that, as you said, changes our perspective, then changes us as individuals because you are... A completely different person now and i'm not uh, forgive me if i'm speaking on your behalf but you're probably a very different person now than you were age 12 judo champion your so. perspective <laughs> is different your thought process is different your uh um, what you focus on is different what your priorities are is very different um do you feel that you are in or, or let's let's push this forward where do you feel that you need to develop but so if you're on this path now and you, as you said, get get taught lessons, what lesson do you feel that you need to learn at this point? The way I see it, if I, I go back now just to, to explain the extrasensory business consultancy, I remember wanting to have, you'd say, clairvoyant abilities from a very young age. You know, I remember read, reading about, I remember reading about it and, and trying to develop them. And, and it took a very, very, very long time to develop. And what I realize now is, you know, Kabbalah, Jewish spirituality is called Kabbalah. And the, 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 the basic um, premise, I'd say, is that they're lights and they're vessels. Okay, so the light, the light of the inf of infinity of God is always present. And we can't, we can't affect the light, but we can affect the vessel. Each, each one of us is a vessel. And the, the stronger and purer the vessel, the more light it can contain. So um, it's like, uh, if I can think of an analogy, it's like if you, you take like a radio player. So there's, you know, the radio frequency, the radio, wa the wa radio waves surrounding us. But it depends on if you have a radio player that's, that's strong, 
and it's uh, set to the right frequency, you can hear you know, clearly that specific station that you choose to listen to. But yeah. you have to buy the radio and invest in it, et cetera, but you, you don't affect the, the, the radio waves. So the same thing is about, you know, when think about lights and vessels. So um, the more we strengthen our vessel, meaning, you know, the, the, the stronger and the, the building our own character and, you know, living a certain, a certain life and, and maintaining a certain mindset, then that basically strengthens our vessel and then we can have more light come through us. It's like channels of information. So we, we, we work on the infrastructure and then whatever needs to come will come. So I, I'm focusing on the infrastructure. I don't know what necessarily will be the next step, but uh, at this point, I just want to, you know, I have the, my tool, the tools at my disposal, so to speak, are actually, you know, within in my family and within and it, within my close surroundings. That's personally, and then professionally as a homeopath and as a, as a business consultant you know, to, to basically follow my calling. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in, in spiritual laws as well. So in, in my book, I talk about the 50 spiritual laws, you know, the law of attraction, karma, the ba- obviously the basic ones that people are aware of, but there are also other laws that people aren't aware of, as you said, the vibrational laws, etc. And there are actually quantum physics experiments that prove this now, that if you zoom in enough, it's not a table, it's it's vibrations. The double slits experiment, particle entanglement. So there is proof that a lot of these historic religions and, and artifacts and books show this this stuff. You mentioned the Kabbalah there, and I was looking at this the other day. Is it sod or sod? The the like the fourth level of understanding of the Kabbalah. Yeah, sod, which is yeah, basically sod. translated as as secret. That's the that's the, that's the, the the simple translation of it. So what does that entail? Because you mentioned Kabbalah thinking a minute ago what does that entail and does that incorporate into your um your homeopath and business consulting side of things well like kabbalah kabbalah speaks about the the four levels of of understanding like if you if you take a, a biblical text there there are four levels of understanding the biblical text um the first one without going into it too much is is pshat is simplistic you know uh, just what you see is what you get uh then there's uh drash which is um where you go into more you know into a deeper level remez and sod remez is like uh if i translate it it's called a clue or some symbol and the sod is the deepest level now it's very you know sod is is like it's it's such an internal level that um I don't know if you can even perceive it. We can perceive it with our limited understanding. But if you, you talk about the holy scripts like the Zohar, uh, it speaks about the uh, the sword. It's like it's it's considered the pnimiuta Torah, the inside, the 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 deeper level of, of the Torah. And when you have an understanding of the, by the way, I I wasn't born religious. It's over time as I became. As I learned more spiritually, and I learned more about homeopathy and about spirituality, etc., I I understood the deeper meaning of of living a religious life. It's not basically you uh, you know you, you wash your hands in the morning in a certain way 
because just because it's written that way it's because that uh, when when you're asleep it's it says it's like one one part of 60 of death and then um what you would call tumah uh, impurities are left on your on your hands and your fingernails and when you actually um clean your clean, clean your hands in a certain way and say a, a specific blessing that removes the impurities and that that understanding for instance that's an that's an example of of the internal side of the Torah, when you understand the the the, the deeper reason for why you do things, um, and most people, th- these deeper reasons used to be uh, in the past only you know high scholars used to know or Kabbalists used to know these deeper reasons, and now more and more people are understanding this. And and for me, the more I understood the deeper reason for doing things, that's why I I, I decided to become, I say, a, a more observant uh, Jew and do what I do, because uh, there's a reason behind things that I choose to do at the end of the day. Well, I think that's, that's a couple of things there that's, that's really important. I think the four levels things that you talked about is amazing, because even in our own life, we, we can see things in four levels. Something happens to us, we can say, oh, that's happened. If we look deeper, what deeper meaning is there? As you said, what lessons are there to learn? etc etc so i think that's a really good way of looking at things that we can look at, at stuff at increased levels you also mentioned you've you've increased your spirituality journey which is great in religious journey um and do you think that comes down to consciousness like your conscious awareness of what's happened in your life how you feel how to behave correctly um and as you said about vibrational states does acting in a certain way do you feel puts you into a better vibrational state than going out murdering people as a as an extreme? I, I what I think is you know going going with you know what you said is 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 very correct because I think um, religion you know Jewish religion okay I can talk about Jewish religion when it's done properly and correctly the whole point is getting you to a higher vibrational state getting you to a purer state of mind. Again, it has to be done correctly because religion has been misused mm. <laughs> and misinterpreted in, you know, in the, the worst things have been done in the name of religion, um, any sort of religion. So it's a, it's also, it can be also very dangerous, but, but I think the uh, Jewish Judaism it's actually meant to bring you to a higher vibration. That's why. That's ultimately why I do what I do in order to reach a higher consciousness and a higher vibration. And the higher consciousness and the higher vibration you have, you can make better choices, more informed choices. You know, you you you're more. It's like being you know in the zone, so to speak. You know, when things go smoothly and you're connected and and uh, it, it's 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 just a, a much for me. It's a much better way. Of living even even you know i of course i i encounter hardships and they're difficult times but i always have i feel that there's always like a center where i can go back to a place that i can return to and i think that's very important yeah 100 and i think that like we all know of those people who good things just keep happening to them and we also know those people who bad things keep happening to them and they are unlucky and unfortunate do you think that's that comes down to their state of mind, their vibrational state, their consciousness? I think it's a higher. I I, I agree that you see what what you describe now is something that we talk about a lot in homeopathy. People people work in patterns. People have a pattern. It's like uh, 
you know, they, they have this frequency that they emit and this frequency sort of creates things in their reality and it keeps on, and usually people repeat the pattern. So you see, you see people, these patterns will keep on repeating. Now, spiritual, if I look at it from a spiritual perspective, these patterns will keep on repeating in order to give this person a chance to break the pattern. You know, like if okay. a woman was abused at a, at a younger age and she keeps on finding herself in abusive relationships, it's like um, she's being put, you know, she keeps on getting the same lesson again and again and again in order to 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 learn the lesson. Okay. Um, now, it, I know it's not easy to hear that, you know, that a woman who's been abused, it's it's also because of her makeup, but it's also got to do with her, the way I look at it, the way I see it, it's got to do also with her lesson, the her journey, her soul. There's a reason why she was born to us, Every you know, why every each of one of us is born to, born to a certain family. And we have these different experiences in life. We've got... You know, karma. We have we we have souls that we keep on meeting, and we keep on you know we have journeys to make and lessons to learn from each other. Now, as as we work in patterns and we we try to learn these lessons, what homeopathy does it's very difficult. From what I see, if you just work at it from a um, from a mindful point of view, you just try to resolve things with your mind. It's very difficult because. Um, you can't control your emotions. You can tell, like, if someone's afraid of a dog, you know, has a fear of dogs, you can tell him, you know, even when he's 30 and the dog is behind, tied behind the, you know, behind the fence, there's nothing you can explain to him that can really take that fear away. Uh, it's very difficult to 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 break these plans because they have emotional and subconscious um, roots. Yeah. So coming from it's difficult you can't overthink things or you can't resolve things with your brain nor can you resolve things from my experience by talking about them too much because the thing is the more you focus on something the bigger the bigger it grows so if you keep on talking about all the things that bother you it means that you keep on looking for the things that bother you and you know the way perspective i think the the eye actually the way we look at things nurtures them so if if uh, if I'm looking for bad things, that's what I find at the end of the day. You know, also, you spoke about quantum physics. Quantum physics also shows that that the eye actually affects what happens in reality. You know, you yeah. can affect the, way, the, the observer. It's like what you uh, focus on. It's like what you focus on, you see more of. They did an experiment, actually, where yeah. they asked, there was like a black team and a white team or red and blue team, and they were throwing the ball to each other. And they asked the individuals to to count how many times the ball passed, the balls passed between. So you're focused on the balls. And during this video, uh, during this experiment, a gorilla walks through past yeah. everyone across the center of the, the, the stage or video uh, that's being played. And they, they, they asked them, well, how many balls crossed over? And they said, oh, 23, 24, 25, whatever the number was. And said, how many noticed the gorilla? Hardly anyone did because they're so focused on these balls that they don't see the wider picture. If you have not said to them, focus on these balls and count the number, they probably would have seen the gorilla. So it is, as you said, what you focus on uh, that's important. Um, and then you also said um, a couple of things about obviously your soul and, and the, the lessons that you learn. Do you feel it's a case of you win or you learn from each experience? 
I, well, I just want to um, just finish finish the 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 what what I the idea was I was I was saying. I what what, what that experiment is is definitely uh, shows how how the, the way the way that you observe things affects your reality, and that's why I said that I I find that talking about problems tends to not solve them because you just give them more 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 room. But if I'm to, so. But I, what is effective? Because I said up till now, I focus on, on I focus on what isn't effective. So what what can you actually do to break patterns? What, what I find is actually the best way to break patterns is homeopathy, and that's why I do it. Because in order to break a pattern, it's, first of all, it's the homeopath's job to identify the pattern, so you don't have to worry about that. But um, in order to break a pattern, it has to something has to happen. Uh, in your subconscious level or on a higher spiritual level. And it's not something that necessarily you'll be aware of. That's what I see on my, you know, on my patients. They have a pattern, they take a homeopathic remedy and something just changes. Okay, because something changed something within them and then they don't repeat the pattern anymore or when the pattern re represents itself or the situation represents itself because they have changed, they changed their you know, the way they react to it and the lesson's done. They've learned the lesson and it moves on. So um, I think homeopathy is one of the strongest tools and I've experienced so many different forms of alternative medicine from uh, um, elective bee stings to, <laughs> to Chinese medicine, osteopathy, um, Feldenkrais, anything. You know, I, I've tried so frequency uh, treatment, resonance, bioresonance, I think the fact that homeopathy basically perceives the entire individual and can give um, a remedy which is affects, which is actually the spiritual essence of uh, of a, of one of maybe five thousand different substances, and it can make such a huge and deep change in the individual that you see changes also on a physical level, also on a mental level. But the most important thing is that people don't repeat the same patterns. Like someone can suddenly become promoted after twenty years that they haven't been, you know, that they've been, been in the same position or a woman can, you know, finally decide to, to leave a relationship with her husband or son or finally, or finally she, you know, she has a good relationship with, with her husband after so many years because something, something very deep changes. Um, and that's got to do with breaking patterns. So, so, so basically, I think what homeopathy does, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, what's the process that you that you undertake in order to help people change all of those things you've mentioned? Um, if I look at from from a homeopathic point of view, um, so I give them a homeopathic remedy. Now, how do you prescribe a homeopathic remedy? Um, you, in order to prescribe, you know, to be a, give a good prescription, you want to hear the person's entire life story. Um, preferably even if you if you have a chance to speak if it's a child you want to hear the mother how was the birth how was the pregnancy because patterns tend to repeat themselves uh, like if you see that the, the that that things that the mother experienced during the pregnancy and during the birth you'll see that it's, it's amazing how you see that in the child's life um, if the if the mother for instance uh, uh, lost her parents during uh, the pregnancy and she was very sad and grieving um, you see that also, it, it, it affects the child, you know, uh, you see that. 
um, or you see that I, there, I, there was this woman that she, when she was pregnant, she used to crave ice and uh, she never yeah. craved ice before. <laughs> and when a child was born, he used to crave ice. So it's amazing how much, uh, you know, uh, a fetus can, can affect the mother um, and what a close relationship they have. So when you take, you know, homeopathy, we say we take the case. You hear the, the mother's story, you hear about the birth, you, you hear about the pregnancy, you know, the pregnancy, the birth, if it was a traumatic birth, obviously it does have its have its effect. Um, and then you, you want to know about the, the, the family environment, environment, you know, whether, uh, you know, it's a happy family or whether the parents are having difficulties, because obviously that affects the child. Then you want to know about, about the character traits. You know, most people think that, you know, especially when they talk about the children, oh, that's just his nature. He tends to be angry or he's stingy or he's, uh, you know, he, or, or he's needy. Um, they, these are traits, but from my experience, they can change. If you give a good remedy, you see that a needy child becomes confident. A child that, you know, his life pattern is that he's bullied everywhere he goes. You can change his nursery or you can change his school, but wherever he goes, he's bullied. It's because something in the resonance, you know, that he puts out, something in his frequency, in the vibration, uh, basically um, draws that kind of energy. And when he gets a good remedy, uh, you see that also changes. So in homeopathy, you take into account also the character trait, the person's nature, and all their physical and mental symptoms. So the physical symptoms... It's not just a tummy, you know, you can say my tummy is sore. He has tummy aches. You say he's, you know, he's got a tummy ache at five o'clock in the afternoon after he drinks milk. That's the, the we're going to very fine resolutions in order to see. And everything has a pattern. You see that the physical patterns and the mental patterns tend to, if you have a deeper understanding, you'll see that they're the same. They reflect each other. So that's how you, from what you said, sort of find and create the diagnosis or prescription. But then, as an ex- what would be like an example prescription, or th- or as you said, remedy that you would prescribe for that individual in order to help them change? And how long would you expect it to take to actually see results? Well, I, I can give. Let me. I'm just trying to think of an example. I I give you an example for for uh, a remedy. There's a remedy called uh, Natmur. It's Natrum Muriaticum. Uh, it's made of salt, common salt. And uh, you would, now, how do you know, how do you make it? I'll start by homeopathy. How do you know what a remedy does, what a homeopathic remedy cures? Uh, Because homeopathy, one of the main principles of homeopathy is like cures like, meaning that uh, a certain substance uh, remedy that can create certain symptoms in a healthy individual will be able to cure those same symptoms in in a sick individual. So, uh, you know, we all know that consuming too much salt uh, leads to, you know, retention of water, edema, and uh, high blood levels, uh, etc. You know, it's not healthy to, to, to consume too much salt. However, as a homeopathic remedy, if someone came to me, uh, it w- it w- I'd say it would be suitable to individuals which are, you know, that salt has a power of absorbing things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would be it's, it's suitable for 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 very for for people who are very closed, very very, you know, who repress maybe their their feelings. People who are grieving, you know. I remember reading a book where where uh, the author described a cow that was grieving for her 
what's the the for her calf and she was licking salt so people are grieving uh people who are suffering from grief also th that remedy is good for um people who are suffering from uh, also things to do with the basically the water balance and balance and fluid balance of the body so when you take into account the person's pattern so you have a person maybe a child who 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 lost their who lost their parents and since then he's drinking a lot of water and he's also uh, he suffers from suffers from inconst incontinence during the night okay um and uh, he's very introverted and and but he, and, he, and he doesn't ex express his grief uh, so you have this whole picture, which is all about, you know, retention and, and water. And it's a sort of, it's a certain pattern that you see. And obviously this pattern, you know, is expressed in other symptoms. Also, also, we also look at dreams in homeopathy. Um, so, and then if you give this child the, that, that remedy and it's suitable, you see that the child open up, opens up. It's more, it's, it's more expressive. Uh, things change with the fluid intake. So th things things change, and usually uh, you ask how quickly things change. Um, the healthier person is, you see the change faster. Um, that like children in children in babies, you see changes are. I remember especially with dentition, people used to tell me how they used to just throw the remedy into the child's mouth, and within less than a minute. I remember also telling my husband we used to give the remedy to my daughter. She was screaming in agony. I tell I told him less than five minutes you see she calms down and less than five minutes she used to calm down and and there is no chemical reaction here because homeopathy actually works on a different level so you you can see amazing results very quickly um, however the that's the more dynamic a person is if you're talking to about older people who've been taking lots of medication and you have like diseases which have been there for longer time longer times then obviously changes take, you know, take longer. So we talked a bit about homeopathy rather, and also we yeah. talked about the um, people learn lessons for certain reasons and we are born into families for certain reasons, etc. So what's your stance on determinism versus free will? Or do you feel that there can be a crossover? Ooh, that's a huge one. <laughs> for me, I think there is an element of determinism we are certain seeds that grow into certain trees but at each checkpoint we have free will into how we act because for those people who die from heroin overdoses i don't believe that that was their determined path but they took at each as you said lesson point or at each life event whatever it's going to be they made the wrong choice which mm -hmm. then after 5, 10, 15, 20 choices, it then leads you down a different path. What's your, what's your view on that? And the reason I ask is because obviously you know a bit about people's history and how to cure remedies. You also know a lot about the Kabbalah and the sod type of things. So I thought it would be a, a good question to ask you. Yeah, that's a, that's an amazing question. And it's a question that I keep, you know, that I meet at different levels and I have, every time I have a, a a diff different understanding, hopefully a better understanding of it. Um, but if I, I think, um, like, um, basically, you 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 have the lessons and you choose, you choose whether you, you know, the lessons, are, like we said, are presented at your doorstep, and you can choose whether you want to learn them. And in Hebrew, there's a saying, you know, it's it's called 
מצווה גוררת מצווה והעבירה גוררת עבירה. Which means um, המצווה is uh, like, uh, I'd say maybe if I were to just translate it in a very simplistic terms, good deeds lead to good deeds and bad deeds lead to worse deeds. So when you, I think the, the, the better choices you make, you expand your choices. The worst choices you make, you keep on constricting yourself um, and you're more and more constricted, which in a way is an advantage. Uh, the constriction is also, so I think it's an inbuilt system, which is actually good for you because when you're constricted, you have less choice and you can make less mistakes in a way. So it can be more difficult to make those mistakes, but you have to, you have no choice back to, we spoke about inspiration or desperation. The worst choice you make, you become more and more desperate. So if you don't, if you make good choice, you, you grow out of inspiration. Um, and if I'd say, if you make worse choices, if you can actually call that, it's very simplistic to look at it that way. You, it forces you to grow out of desperation. <laughs> that, that makes that makes sense actually. To to be fair, and yeah, I think you've got a similar view. Is is that we do have a choice, freedom of choice, but there is a path, a path as well that that we are there to follow. And I think we can feel that internally, can't we? That this feels like the right way to go. And I have this sort of dichotomy where my heart says to do one thing, and I don't know really why it says to do that. There's no evidence as to why I should do that thing whereas my brain is based on logic and oh I've done all the research I've looked at every possible outcome and this I should be doing this what's your thoughts on that as well in terms of the brain versus um or, or the head versus the heart dilemma I mean, that's a, that's a really good point you 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 raised now because I think that um it's it's very Ideally, you can you can sort of uh, combine the two, your heart and your brain. Uh, so ma- basically, make an informed choice uh, with what you with what your passion is and what you love. But it's it's and I think the more you grow, the more clarity you have as to why. Sometimes you can think it's your heart, but it's not really your heart. It's more like some uh, subconscious fear that that's you know um, drawing you towards something. So. It's it's very difficult to say, you know, in in many cases, wh- why you feel that you want to do something and you know that you're averse to doing something else. Because sometimes actually you you're afraid of doing something because it's like a doorway. And once you actually manage to leap, grow above that that initial fear, something great is going to happen. So it's very tricky. Um, depending only on on the way you feel because you know some people say you know I feel like eating a chocolate bar <laughs> and staying in bed all day and watching TV so that's the way I feel I'm going to follow my heart so I think a part of I think uh, I'd say what I say purifying the vessel what I spoke about is knowing uh, when it's actually when it's your true heart or your higher higher soul talking through your heart and telling you directing you towards the right path or when when it's you know in kabbalah they they speak about there's the there's the there's the animal side and the uh, you know of of each 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 person has an animal side and a higher a higher a higher higher side you know a higher 
being or higher existence. So knowing when when things come from the your lower side or from your higher side, it's 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 a question in itself. And that's that's about the the purer the purer the vessel is. It's easier to identify where things are coming from. So the brain has a very important uh, job, I think, to 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 realize you know to differentiate and see. So I I think you can't completely overlook. Uh, either your heart or your brain, because like I say, it's difficult, it's very difficult to know where things are coming from, unless you're very trained. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the brain situation there, there is uh, the reptile brain, isn't there? And then the the, the higher brain or the monkey brain, as some people people call it. Do you feel that your your consciousness, etc, has led you into what you, you do now? So the, the the business consulting as well, because we've talked a bit about the homeopath side. Um, what what does what does your insight lead to in the business consulting side as well? Um, I just I just want to uh, from what I from I just want to regarding what you said. There, there is the brain, like there's the the croc brain. <laughs> yeah, I heard someone describe it, and the higher brain. I think they are a reflection of what happens spiritually. Okay, okay. so. Um, the physical, maybe they're the physical reflection of how things are, because we have um, our higher being is something that it's not quantifiable or measurable. Um, uh, so, um, and just going back to your question, I think if I, when someone comes to me for, uh, when I, I do the business consulting, so I, I, every, the way I, I understand it or the way I do according to bioergonomy, which is basically a method, bioergonomy is a, is an extrasensory method, which enables me to perceive and influence uh, the subject that I'm focusing on. So when, if, when someone comes to me for business consulting, the first thing I check is that, is that all their energy fields are intact. According to bioergonomy and other you know, schools of thought. Um, everything has an energy field. Each person, every person, every animal, and also, um, you know, bank accounts have energy fields. Businesses, your sales department has an energy field. Everything has an energy field. And once, if those energy fields are disrupted, that's when you know you start having problems with the business or, or people become sick, they become ill, et cetera. So the first thing I do when I check that all the energy fields are intact uh, of different, for different levels and different categories. And usually you find that the energy fields aren't intact and that's what you can, and using bioergonomy, I can fix those energy fields. And also lots of people have what you would call energetic leeches, which is interesting. It's like, um, it's usually people that leech on that person's energy. Now, these people don't necessarily consciously le- leech on on someone's energy, but they do. <laughs> so even, even just making people aware that they have energetic leeches, it could be, you know, one, even they're one of their children, which they love very much, um, or their spouse or their business partner or clients or whatever. So actually making people aware of the energy leeches and cleaning up that, uh, I'd say that independence is something that you can do with bioergonomy. So once I have, once I see that all the energy fields are in check, then I start checking whether um, 
personal goals are aligned with business goals because what happens, you know, you see lots of people, their goals aren't aligned. They have, in also in homeopathy, disease usually starts when you send a mixed uh, message to the universe, okay? It's like uh, when you're the waves that you send out, they aren't coherent. On the one hand, I want to I want to be very good at my job. On the other hand, I'm feeling feeling guilty because my children are at home and I'm not a good mother. So I want to be at home. So I'm sending out an incoherent message to the universe, and that that and obviously when I send such a message, I I won't get the results I want. So something has to change. Either I have to align my goals or I have to change the way I go about getting my goals. But but things, if things aren't this this incoherency, so to speak, it can't last a long time. Yeah. You no, know, just so in nature, if things don't work, they just don't last. They don't survive. What what, what makes up an energy field? What makes up an energy what makes up a good energy field? Like you said that you go in and you look at the energy field. Is it numerology? Is it the the people who work there? Is it the business name? What makes up this energy field that you talked about? I think lots of people, lots of things affect the energy fields. And I don't necessarily um, go into it. I, I would just check. I'd check the business. I just see that. I just check. I see that it's got 100% energy fields. And if it doesn't, I clean it up. And if it doesn't work, you know, just like a basic clean, I would say, okay, there's something uh, there's something that's affecting the business. Is it and, and then I start looking at different options. So basically, I combine my experience with the I say the extrasensory um, with my extrasensory abilities because when I start looking at the options, I derive the options from my experience. Is it the partnership? Is it the name? Is it the sales? Is it the the clients? Is it the something wrong with the agreements? I, I I use my experience to as you know as a, a basis as a foundation, and then I use my extrasensory abilities to sort of hone in on the on the problem, and then we start discussing it, and we see, um, and I do it with the client, and she's usually I work I I work with women who are uh, business owners of small small businesses, so we'll talk about it, and we'll see, and we, and things start coming up. Uh, and then we just go into whatever, wherever the path leads us. So I don't come with an agenda. I just want to see, I, I sort of, it's like a piece of string and you start following it and pulling it. And then you can re- get to the root of the problem. No, it makes sense that you, you don't necessarily look for something specifically, but you have an overarching view and then you can make an assessment because sometimes there's there's the macro and the micro, isn't there? Sometimes you yeah. look at the details, but sometimes you need to see the big picture and you can see something's off without having to look at the individual details sometimes. Is that what you're referring to? I, I'll give you an example. This woman turned to me and she said, listen, I've got this great business. Everything's great, but I don't know, our sales are down. We're not making money. Why, why aren't we succeeding? So I checked all the different aspects of the business and everything was okay. And then what we realized was that she was making more money than her husband and her husband was basically the her husband wasn't happy, you know, consciously or subconsciously that she was making more money than him. Okay, and his energy was stopping her from making money. So, um, and that's something that you know it's not in the I say in the business books. This is more like the spiritual books. You know, you have to know what you're dealing with. And normally a husband feels, most husbands feel uncomfortable not being the main breadwinners. 
So uh, that's just the way it is. <laughs> uh, so we said, so we found a solution. We said, okay, we want the business to succeed. What we'll do is you make him feel part of it. That's what I told him. Make him feel part of the business and part of the success. Ask him for ideas, ask him for advice. And then when the business succeeds, he will feel that the part he's part of the success. It's also a part, he's, his business. He'll want the business to succeed. He won't see the business as a, as, as a threat and as competition because you, you, you made him part of the business. So, uh, and, and that's how we resolve the issue. Once the husband felt that he was part of the business and the business, the success of the business was also thanks to him, he had an interest that the business will succeed. And there wasn't any conflict there. He didn't have an internal conflict. Like I want my wife to succeed. I want the business to succeed. However, my ego. So I, what we try to do is we try to resolve conflicts and people have internal conflicts all the time. You know, whether like, like for instance, mother versus Korean woman and also external conflicts. So we're constantly trying to see how we can resolve conflict for, conflicts for the higher good of all those involved. That's that's the key here because we want to do things, we want to keep the win-win going, right? That's what we're talking about. So we want the husband to feel good about this. We want, like that's just in, in my example, there's no point in going to your husband saying, listen, you've got to, you know, I make more money, money than you, you know, find a way to deal with it. You, you want to basically create a, a harmonious environment because that's the vessel that will contain the abundance. Yeah, I don't know if you've read um, any of Florence Scoville Shin's books. I mean, you probably haven't because they're not sort of religious texts, but they're books that talk a lot about this spirituality side of things. And that um, it's all about how you're perceiving things and looking at things that can change, obviously, the dynamics. So as you said, maybe just a, a shift in her husband's viewpoint can change the whole whole situation. So is there exactly. any advice you've got for people that could do that in their own own life to 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 make changes or improve? Or is it a case of needing someone to see it, the entire picture before making an assessment? I think I had I had an understanding yesterday I was speaking to uh, to to this woman who owns a business in, in Tanzania. Uh, um and and I, I I had one of the understandings I had while I was talking to her was that at the end of the day you can and this is this may not sound very spiritual but this is but to me it's very spiritual because you can only rely on that at the end of the day you can only rely on a person's goodwill for so long uh people have to feel that they are gaining from from a relationship whether it's a business relationship or a, per, a personal relationship um people sometimes have this idea of, of some ideal i i you know, ideological idea how people can, they expect other people to do things out of their goodwill, uh, whether it's employees, uh, they expect them to give, you know, 200% just because the business or even, you know, their partners. And it doesn't work. You have to, um, you, you always, people always have, you have to make sure that people are always getting value from their relationship with you, whether it's, it doesn't have to be monetary value. Um, I think even the research showed that people would rather stay in a job where they feel, uh, you know, respected and uh, and uh, people where their their abilities are are commended 
than uh, at the higher paying jobs where where they they feel that they're not getting the that they're not being acknowledged they're what they do isn't acknowledged as much as they, they feel they deserve so the even by so like i say you the value can be acknowledgement value can be you know um just being there and, and and showing the person that you actually see them you see their efforts you see what they're doing you see their difficulties people people value that at least as much as money let me put it that way it depends on you know on the situation they're they're at so that's one thing i think is very important is don't rely on people's goodwill for <laughs> for a very long time because it won't last yeah no as you said everyone's got their we talked about selfish being right at the start everyone has got an inherent selfishness haven't they that they want to see some sort of benefit and even if it's as you said not monetary it's just gratitude for what they've done um exactly it's, it's not you know in the kabbalistically you know kabbalah has everything or very organized <laughs> in the way you look at things so they say like the minimum you need is something that you know uh you, you you need basically you need a minimum there's a minimum that you need to maintain yourself and you have a duty to maintain your 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 personal entity you know and uh, that's not it's there's nothing wrong with that it's 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 nothing to commend you about and it's nothing to you know to to um to reproach you about there's just there's a basic minimum that you need as a person whether it's it's to maintain your physical being, you know, uh, food, water, etc., and personal space, and also the minimum you need as far as being acknowledged and being seen. So uh, I think starting out back to the beginning of our conversation, an individual athlete, being an individual athlete, athlete, you learn how to look after number one. And once you know how to look after number one, you and you've mastered that, you have to move on to the next level which is looking after the people around you. But first, before you start looking after everyone around you, you have to know how to look after number one. Yeah. Well, you you can't look after others unless you are self-sufficient anyway. Exactly. Those who can look after everyone else is because they've, they are so competent that they've built up a surplus that allows them to then take care of family and the wider community, et cetera. Um, so yeah, exactly. definitely comes back to working on yourself um, improving your consciousness, improving your skill set, and providing more value for others. Um, is there anything that you, before we talk about where people can find you, is there anything that you want to talk about or or, or mention that we haven't maybe covered? It's just what, when uh, what you described now was the healthy the healthy state of taking care of others, but there is the unhealthy state of taking care of others, and I think it's uh, you know as as, as a woman <laughs> and a mother. It's something that I think women tend to, you know, fall more into that pattern is when you you take care of everyone else and you don't take care of yourself. Yeah. And when that happens, you naturally become very bitter. <laughs> you, you know, you have this victim mindset and you become very bitter and very sour. And that's a, a very dangerous place to be, in, although very natural and happens a lot and often. It's very a very dangerous place to be in as a woman and as anyone and, you know, and and for anyone around you, <laughs> yeah. so, not, uh, so I think every every woman and mother has found herself in that position. So being able to take care of other people, like you said, is very important from a healthy place where you you've taken care of yourself. 
but there's always the like I said the system like we spoke about systems that just won't last forever and can't last I don't know forever but can't last for long is when you're taking care of everyone and not taking care of yourself so, so where can people find you then if they wanted to reach out for the homeopathic stuff or the business consulting for example um, well, I've got my website. It's uh, bio four the number four biz, uh, bio the number four biz dot com, and you can always leave a message. You know, I've got my LinkedIn, um, so anyone's welcome to to contact contact me there, and I'd be happy to to see how I can help. Yeah, well, we'll we'll leave the notes in in, in obviously the the comment section, etc. Um, but if you've not got anything else to add, um. Thank you very much for being a guest. It's been a great conversation. Covered a lot of different areas from, from yeah. Judo to Kabbalah to, to your specific specialisms as well. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much for being a guest. It's been a, a great show. And thank you, Jivan. It was a real pleasure to speak with you. And 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 it's amazing how much you, you know about so many different fields. And uh, it's a real pleasure to talk to someone about also about spiritual uh, things and also about... You know, about the the material world, which is I, I I think that combination is so so important, and I think I think the the consciousness of of humanity, I think the right direction, not on myself, is is to 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 combine the two. Uh, the more people understand that the material world is basically uh, nurtured by the spiritual, I think the world would be a better place. Absolutely. But thanks again, and uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon. Thank you. Cheers. Mm -hmm.